some good news. 2020 has um, done everything but shot us in the face, but now we have a little bit of good news to talk about. Um, I'm going to lead with that story about the left-wing victories. Now, don't get too excited because um, it's not all puppies and rainbows today. In fact, there's quite a bit of um, devastation as well. Some COVID-19 number updates are really, really, really bad. So uh, I'll talk about that as well. Obama is now campaigning for Joe Biden. They're doing some live streams. We also have, um, we'll talk a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement and the update on the statue backlash, anti-statue movement, whatever you want to call it. Um, And then... Later on in the show, Mark Cuban and Sean Hannity go at it, and Mark Cuban, even though I have like a lot of disagreements with the guy, he, it's so easy to dissect anything that Sean Hannity says because he's such a hack, and that's what Mark Cuban does, so that was an interesting video. And we have the answer as to why John Bolton really hates Trump in his own words, and it is, uh, it's quite interesting. And also... You have um, a Florida woman went to a public hearing on a mandatory mask policy, and uh, her rant went viral, and it's, uh, it's very sad. And then if I have time later on, I'll get to the, the Cuomo thing. There's a, there's a lot of stuff, so just buckle up, get ready, and I'll start with these progressive victories. We had some major, major, major progressive wins this week. 
Um, so shout out to Reed underscore Andrew on Twitter who sent me this, this little graphic that you're about to see. These are the left-wing wins for the June 23rd elections. Um, you know, New York was one of the places where we had uh, elections. We also had uh, an election in Virginia. So here's some of the wins. You have Kasim Rashid, who won in Virginia's first district. Now, that's a heavily right-wing district, but he won the Democratic primary. He's, uh, he's definitely a left-wing candidate, Medicare for All supporting left-wing candidate. He's going to have an uphill battle um, in the general election, but nonetheless, he won the primary um, up against moderates. And I'm actually unsure of how many, can- how many uh, opponents he had, but he is the left candidate and he won. That's obviously great news. What's hilarious, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she won um, her race and there were Wall Street goons and many elitists who were just funneling massive amounts of cash into uh, her opponent's campaign. Her opponent is a former CNBC anchor. I think her name is like Michelle Caruso Cabrera. Uh, AOC ran away with it. It was a landslide. It wasn't even close. What's so funny is that you had many commentators who really thought that AOC might go down because, you know, there's a lot of negative press around her because when you're young and you're outspoken and you're a lefty and you take no crap, oftentimes, you know, um, people want you to shut up and fall in line and be a a good little Democrat like the other Democrats. She gets from the Democratic establishment and then she gets it even worse from like Fox News and the right. But she won with like 72% or something preposterous. So she crushed now, here's, here are the ones that, you know, are really, really, really awesome. Jamal Bowman beat Elliot Angle. Elliot Angle, you know, is a, a longtime congressman, part of, the, part of the Democratic establishment, and Jamal Bowman is an outsider, you know, strong left-wing candidate. I, I, w- I couldn't be happier about that result, and he kind of crushed him. It's like, he won with like 62% or something like that. So just amazing news. This is the exact kind of shot of adrenaline that the left needed because, you know, the left's been struggling recently, but then also 2020 has just spit in our eye and kicked us while we're down and you got a depression and you got a pandemic and you got all this stuff going on. So we needed this good news and thankfully we got it. Um, and then we also have Mondaire Jones. Um, that is in my district, and he's replacing a long-term congresswoman, Nita Lowy. I'm very happy. I got to vote for Mondaire Jones. That, you know, that made me very happy. I, of course, uh, voted for Bernie Sanders, which was kind of bittersweet in the primary, but um, knowing that you know, he's not going to win. But uh, I also voted for Mondaire Jones. He's a Bernie-endorsed candidate. He's pro-Medicare for all. And um, he, he's the first openly gay black man in Congress. So a bunch of firsts there. And he won pretty handily as well. These were pretty solid wins. Now, there were a bunch of moderate, so-called moderate candidates, establishment candidates, and so they kind of split their vote a little bit, which cleared the lane for the lefty. But still, it's still a large win regardless. So that's great. And then you have uh, Dana Balter, Nate McMurray as well. Uh, These are, I believe, upstate New York districts. Then you have uh, state and local level. You know, you can see some of the names there. Some of them look familiar because they're pretty big on, on left-wing Twitter. You have Jabari uh, 
Bryceport, you have Julia Salazar, you have Alessandra Biaggi, Jessica Ramos, and the list goes on. These are um, so there were plenty of wins, you know, Democratic Socialist wins, for example, at the state level. In fact, the left is kind of has been cleaning up for a while at the state and local level. But now it's nice that we get some, some prominent national victories, especially against somebody like Elliot Engel, who is abysmal. Um, so there's a lot to be happy about. There's a lot to be happy about. And now here's, there's one other race that we're waiting on the final results. It's um, the Kentucky race. And Charles Booker is up against uh, Amy McGrath, I think her name is, just an, a total establishment hack, totally useless. Charles Booker is the dynamic left-wing candidate. Now, as of right now, McGrath is leading, but, but basically none of the results are in yet from the most heavily pro-Charles Booker uh, districts and areas. So Louisville hasn't come in yet, and... You know, there's some evidence or there's some reporting that Charles Booker picked up about 80% of Louisville. And if that's even close to correct, then Charles Booker is going to win. And that would be another amazing story. So he would be up against Mitch McConnell uh, in the general. And, man, listen, see, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for strong left-wing candidates to win because these are candidates who really do represent the people and are really – right in line with what all the polling data shows that your average American wants. So what happens when you have the old guard of the Republican Party massively, massively out of touch and corporatist, somebody like Mitch McConnell, up against a dynamic young left-wing candidate? See, the brilliance of having the left win the primaries is that you are then forcing the hand of Republicans to come out and make arguments against these common-sense left-wing positions. Make Mitch McConnell argue against universal health care. Make him argue against the living wage. Make him argue against ending the wars. Make him argue against all that. Now, when they're running up against centrist Democrats, they don't have to make those arguments explicitly because the centrist Democrats aren't pushing those intelligent, common-sense left-wing policies. But if you have a matchup where it's the left versus the right, yeah, he's going to have to make arguments against these positions, and Charles Booker will explicitly make the arguments for those positions. And my guess is, you know, as soon as these ideas get a fair hearing and you tamp down on all of the outside forces that really try to hold the left back, then I think we could have some long-term wins, man. There's, there's something that's unstoppable about the populist left. If you're on the left and you focus on the bread and butter economic issues, even, you know, so-called moderate Republican voters go, you know, I think that person's fighting for me. And they go in your direction. Uh, And then also, listen, this is on top of other left-wing victories that we've had this year. Shout out to um, Marie Newman, Paula Jean Swearingen as well. Uh, She won her primary and Car Eastman. Now, by the way, Car Eastman has apparently said, and I was very happy to hear about this. Uh, Humanist Report reached out to me and told me about this. That Car Eastman made a point of learning from the Bernie Sanders campaign failures, and she made a point of taking the advice of this show. Namely, yes, you run unapologetically on these left-wing policy issues you know, Medicare for all, free college, living wage, all the populist stuff. But, 
but you frame it as moderate. So that's, that's the path she took. I'm going to argue for these really important social democratic left-wing positions, but all the polls show the majority of the American people believe in these positions, so she framed it as moderate, and she won. So you have a real-world example of this philosophy in action, this philosophy working. We have to get to the point where we simply don't care about the labels and signaling to our in-group subculture about how down we are with the struggle and how down we are with the left. We have to appeal to normie voters. And the way you appeal to normie voters is talk about these bread-and-butter issues, Medicare for all, free college, living wage, end the wars, infrastructure deal, so on and so forth, but call it moderate. Say, I'm the one who's got these, the common sense positions. It's the, the so-called centrists who are elitists who are representing the will of the corporations and the mega rich. These are the arguments that work. And now we know for sure that that's the case. Now, uh, beyond that, what we need to do is take this momentum and plow forward. Take this momentum and... You don't stop. Like, yes, we're going to have instances of giant left-wing losses, but we're also going to have instances of left-wing victories. And so you hold on to the good moments and you use it to, to fuel you moving forward. And, you know, now in the future we have Jen Perlman, for example, is up against Debbie Wasserman Schultz. That's a really important race. It would be amazing to take her down. You guys should help out Jen Perlman however you can. Um, Cori Bush is running again, one of the original Justice Democrats. You know, I hope she wins her race. And then you also have probably the one that everybody's talking about the most, uh, Shahid Batar up against Nancy Pelosi. Can you imagine the sheer panic that would jolt through Washington, D.C. and Wall Street and the elitist centers of power if we take down Nancy Pelosi? and replace Nancy Pelosi with a real lefty? See, that's what I'm saying, man. Make them argue against our, the best of us. The best of us. Shahid Batar arguing for all the right policies. Make them argue against them, because then they look stupid. And that's when we win in the long run. So, listen. These are great results. If you lose once, try again. If you lose a second time, try again. If you lose a third time, you try again. Because the Democratic establishment, they're paper tigers. They're not bulletproof. In the same way that Trump managed to, you know, get through the Republican establishment when they did not want him. The money interest in the Republican Party did not want him. They wanted Marco Rubio. They wanted Jeb Bush. They would have accepted Ted Cruz. But they got Trump. In the same way that he could take them down. Now, by the way, he serves them, just to be clear. He, he ran as an outsider, now he's the ultimate insider. But for us, we'll never be insiders. We will always be outsiders. But keep fighting. Eventually you'll win. One of the things that nobody talks about in elections is that name recognition is huge. So if you run two or three times, you might not win. But by the fourth time or the fifth time, people see that name, they recognize that name, then you're much more likely to win. You know, there's plenty of people who run for office, and they don't win three or four times, and then they win. So keep showing up. 
never take no for an answer. Never settle. If you keep showing up, they can't deny you. Now, the final thing I'll bring up is, why now? Like, what is it about this moment in history that appears to finally have people, at least for this one election cycle, coming to their senses? And listen, I think the answer is hiding in plain sight. The first thing is there's a pandemic. There's a pandemic. Over 120,000 Americans have died. Over 2 million Americans have it. When people are struggling, when people are hurting, they tend to want candidates who feel that hurt and want to do something to alleviate it. You're not going to get that from Republicans, and you're not going to get that from corporate Democrats. You're only going to get that from people like Jamal Bowman. The other thing is, there's an economic depression. We have the real unemployment rate is over 20%. The real unemployment rate. That's above the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. That's above that. So you have a pandemic and you have an economic depression, which means average people are hurting, so they're looking for real solutions. Where are you going to get the real solutions from? People like Jamal Bowman, the left. Um, And then the other thing is, in the era of Trump, the polls are really showing now that people want the exact opposite of Trump. So, And it looks like they're actually settling ideologically for the exact opposite of Trump. So they want total change, and that's helping the left. And then I'd say the fourth thing is the protest. I think that with sort of like a left-wing resurgence, it's moving the Overton window. And this is the trick that the right has been so good at for decades, where they have like these legitimately insane people on the far right saying insane things, but then your average run-of-the-mill Republican has to run further right, at least in rhetoric, to accommodate the, the people who are the activists on the right. Well, now you have loud, aggressive, obnoxious you know, left-wing protesters who in many ways I actually think are unreasonable, you know, who maybe are overly focusing on issues I wouldn't necessarily focus on, or, you know, the main thing has become now, now they're not just pulling down Confederate statues, they're just pulling down statues. <laughs> like, we could talk about that later. But they're pulling down Confederate statues, and then now they also pulled down the statue of the general who defeated the Confederacy. <laughs> like, what? Okay. So they're just anti-statue. So in some ways, and, you know, the whole defund the police movement, it sounds really extreme. It sounds like abolish the police. That is not a position that polls well. But what's happened is because you have these protesters in the streets, they have dragged the Overton window to the left. So now even the Republicans are going, no, 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 don't defund the police, but we'll do police reform. We'll do police reform. Do you have any idea? I, not in a million years would I have thought that Republicans would ever, ever, ever say, yeah, I'm for police reform. What's made them do that is that the left-wing activists have gone so far left on this that they're dragging everybody to meet them halfway, and the halfway position actually has pretty intelligent policies associated with it. So the protests are leading to a resurgence of the left. I would say, thankfully, you know, it's not like these lefties are running on abolish all statues or anything like that but they're really running on actual solutions to all of our problems. And so in that sense, I totally support the protest, even though I might disagree with them on many things. And even though I think it's kind of crazy to be out there with COVID happening and everybody should wear a goddamn mask and socially distance, like we're not playing around here, folks. It's dumb when the right-wingers do it. It's stupid when the left-wingers do it too. 
So if you're going to protest, socially distance and wear the mask. But other than that, like, yeah, it, it is working in the sense that it's dragging the Overton window to the left, and now you see these rise of really good, strong, populist left candidates, and I love it. So we have good news. Let's keep the good news going forward, and it's nice to get a little bit of relief from how treacherous 2020 has been. All right, next, the media is downplaying our wins. The media is downplaying the left-wing victories in this week's elections. Take a look. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in November is too close to call right now between Amy McGrath and Charles Booker. McGrath leads by about 2,000 votes at this point. They're still counting. In New York, two Democratic incumbent seats could be in jeopardy in the state's 12th congressional district primary. Democratic incumbent Carolyn Maloney, who chairs the Oversight Committee, is narrowly leading challenger Shiraz Patel. And in New York's 16th congressional district, Democratic primary, longtime Congressman Elliot Engel, who chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee, trails progressive Jamal Bowman there. Casey, what are the surprises you see in these races and Democratic races across the country last night? So I think it's, it's tempting to read this as, you know, progressives have, uh, in it, you know, voters are looking for somebody that's, that's more progressive, that's not part of the establishment. I think it's a little bit of a mistake to look at it that way. I think it's a rejection of the calcification of, of our politics of people that have been in office for decades. It never counts when the left wins. It always counts when the establishment wins. Just so it just if you're keeping track, even on MSNBC, which is supposed to be the left network, this is the narrative. There's always an excuse. There's always a reason why it doesn't count when the left wins. But if a if a centrist wins or if the right wins mandate, they have a mandate. The left has been rejected when the left wins. It's not that everybody else is rejected. No, never that. See, and they're going to move the goalpost, move the goalpost, move the goalpost. We've seen this before. They were saying there was a lot of chatter in the media about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is so vulnerable in her election. Oh, my God. And then what happened? She won with 72% or roughly that. That was the last I saw the numbers. That wasn't with 100% in. But it was a landslide. It was a landsliding team. There was no question about it. Game, set, match, like, instantly. It was like, all right, polls closed, and AOC won. <laughs> it, was just, it was boom, immediate. Now, the person that was running against her, I believe her name is Michelle Caruso Cabrera. She used to be a CNBC host. I remember, you know, I covered clips that involved her, you know, years ago or whatever. Um, I think she, like, moved to the district and bought this million-dollar place, and she was getting all this money for billionaires and Wall Street executives and corporations, and the media was like, oh, my God, AOC is so vulnerable. Oh, my God, people don't like her. And then they got smacked in the face with the reality. Now, any of those people in the media who are making those arguments so vulnerable, vulnerable, are any of them going to come out and say, you know what? My bad. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Turns out she's not really disliked, especially in her district. Turns out um, somebody who's loud and aggressive and on the left, it's a rare breed in, in you know, 
in power structures in D.C. Now we have one of those, and everybody's like, oh, okay, I'm down with that. There's these default assumptions that they never question in mainstream media. Namely, it's okay if the right are aggressive lions for their cause. But if people on the left are like that, they just assume that that's not allowed and that's unacceptable. But now she wins with 72%. None of the people who said she was going to get crushed are going to come out and correct and say, you know what, we were wrong, and this is a mandate. That's what this is. This is a, man- this is a huge win for Medicare for All. This is a huge win for a Green New Deal. None of them are going to say that. None of them. Now, by the way, this is Mondaire Jones here. I voted for him. He's in my district. He ended up winning, beat a bunch of you know, centrist goons. One of them was the son of a pharmaceutical executive who just tried to buy his way in. Pro-Medicare for all, first gay black dude elected to Congress, openly gay black dude elected to Congress. Crushed the competition. Is that a mandate for Medicare for all? Is that what that is? They'd never say it. Ne- and now, so the only out that they have, the one that she's using is, well, it's not that it's, this is, you know, outsider, anti-establishment, left-wing candidates, you know, who won the day. It's just, it's just old versus new. It's just old versus new. But hold on. In the Mondaire Jones race, everybody was new in the race. Everybody was new. Because Nita Lowy is the congresswoman for the district. She's been in there since roughly 1473. And so she's stepping down. She's retiring. Everybody in the race was new. Every other option was a new centrist, a pro-establishment candidate. They're all new, but they lost. What's the difference between Mondaire and the other candidates? Oh, that's right. This guy's arguing for left-wing positions. So tell me again, why is it not a mandate for the left? Why does it never count when the left wins? I remember having this debate at Politicon. I was ringing off all the numbers. Um, It was like, honestly, I really don't remember. But you had damn near 100 DSA victories at the state and local level. And I remember sitting next to James Carville and... Joe Lockhart or whatever his name is, they just totally dismissed that point. I was like, okay, yeah, but at DSA won almost up to 100 seats in the last election, and you're saying only, only the, the center wins. Well, then how do you explain that? Well, that doesn't see what the thing is. The overall number of races, you lost a lot more than you won, so the ones that you won don't count. And then when I bring up to them, yeah, but you guys have a gigantic money advantage. So, you know, if we on the left had your money advantage, we'd have a much higher win rate than you do. Yeah, but the thing with the left, it doesn't count because it's the, see, if it's a woman on the left who wins, she won because she's a woman, not because of the left-wing stuff. They, They just, they always have an excuse. There's always an excuse. It never counts when the left wins. It always counts when the center wins. Um, and they'll never learn the lesson because they're paid to not learn the lesson. The reason why she's on MSNBC, the reason why these hosts are in those positions of power is because they're there to reinforce the line of the establishment and the moneyed interest. They're not going to rock the boat too much. That's why Wolf Blitzer's on air for a thousand hours a day is because he's never going to say anything interesting. He's never going to question, you know, the narrative. And the narrative always is, oh, the way the Democrats uh, win is to run to the center. Well, now we have an election where that clearly is not true. And so they changed the narrative to, it's about old versus new. It's about old versus new. Let me tell you something. 
There's a reason why Jamal Bowman beat Elliot Angle. If you have somebody with Elliot Angle's politics running against Elliot Angle, who knows what would have happened? Maybe Elliot would have won. But Jamal Bowman won because Jamal Bowman is arguing very popular positions that all the polling data shows is what the people want. So there's always an excuse, guys. There's always an excuse. You know, I remember them, they had all these, these numbers they'd trot out about the left is getting destroyed. And I had all the counter numbers. Hey, here's the percentage of the races that Justice Democrats won. And it was never enough. It was never enough for them. You know, and it didn't matter that, you know, I, I said, hey, we created this group. This group didn't exist before 2016. We created it after the, the loss, the, the 2016 election loss. That's when we created it. So we create this group out of nothing. And now there's already nine Justice Democrats in Congress. And we did that with a permanent money disadvantage. What more did you want? What did you think we were going to replace everybody in Congress in one election cycle? It's never enough. It's never enough. And they will always downplay it. They're paid to downplay it. So it's, it's just it's frustrating. But then again, it's what we expect. They're professional liars. They're paid to not admit the reality. And listen, sometimes the left loses. But when the left loses, I will try to objectively look at why that is. Sometimes our candidate just isn't dynamic enough, for example. Sometimes it is that money disadvantage. Sometimes it's tactical errors in terms of where the focus is on the campaign. Um, But you don't take no for an answer. You keep showing up again and again and again. And my theory is eventually you won't be denied. But there's always a reason why our wins don't count and their wins 100% of the time count. Always, always, always count. They didn't even view Hillary's loss to Trump as, you know, evidence that maybe neoliberal corporatism is on the way out. They didn't ever say that. They wouldn't allow themselves to entertain it. So it's always selective. It's always selective. But there you have it. And by the way, massive uh, congratulations to all the lefty candidates who won, including Jamal Bowman, including uh, Mondaire Jones, Kassim Rashid, and, uh, and all the candidates because it gave us a bright spot in 2020, which we needed. <clears throat> Fox Business decided to go after Jamal Bowman, who won his race against Elliot Angle. Um, And you can tell they don't quite know what to do with this yet. They're testing out their lines of attack, and they trot out Biden. Elliot Engel is a long-serving congressman from New York. In Tuesday's primary, he was challenged by a young man with no political experience at all. The challenger is leading. Engel may lose, and that has significance way beyond New York. That's because Jamal Bowman, the challenger, is a socialist. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a very prominent supporter. Bowman wants Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, and he wants to defund police departments. If he becomes Congressman Bowman, the far left gets even stronger, and the Democrat split gets a lot more obvious. Old line establishment Democrats supported Engel. Look at him. 
Hillary Clinton, Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, they all lined up behind a 73-year-old incumbent, a trio of big hitters desperate to avoid another challenge to their authority within the party. The old guard is being pushed further and further to the left, and they don't like it. I think, uh, uh, just, just think for a second, what this means for Joe Biden's candidacy. He's very much the old guard, but he's got to come up with policies that attract the young upstarts. AOC, and if he wins, Congressman Bowman. They will have a role in formulating those policies. They're pulling left. How does Joe accommodate the socialists while holding on to the moderates? Joe Biden isn't moving left. He isn't moving anywhere. He's not leaving the basement. But if he did move left, that would be wonderful. That would be great. Now, he's not going to do it, but it would be great if he did. See, here's the paradox, the conundrum that the right is in, in these situations. They always cried wolf when it was Nancy Pelosi, Obama, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton. They hit them with, oh my God, you're a Marxist, you're a socialist, and all that stuff up front. Now you have left-wing candidates, in this case Jamal Bowman's a democratic socialist, and they have only the same attacks that they used against the other establishment Democrats. The other thing is, they're now forced to, they try to make a boogeyman out of these left-wing candidates. But then when the left-wing candidates talk, they, you know, they, they talk about Medicare for All, and they talk about Green New Deal and infrastructure spending and a jobs program and a living wage and ending the wars. And so then the right is put in a position where they are taking on those issues head on. They're openly arguing against stuff like a living wage. And then they'll get more and more unpopular. You see the paradox and you see the conundrum? In their mind, they think like, okay, I get to attack, they use, I get to attack these new lefty candidates, these new lefty politicians, beat up on them like they're my pinata. But you're actually making yourself look less popular because you're openly arguing against ideas that are wildly popular. So in, they're walking, it's almost like they're walking right into a trap and they don't know it. They don't know how to handle the left because what they're used to is guys like Joe Biden and the corporate Democrats who really are moderate Republicans. And they always work the Republicans, and they always give them what they want. And Joe Biden is always conceding and conceding and conceding and never making a left-wing case because he's not on the left. So they're used to dealing with that. They're used to beating up on people who really stand for nothing and believe in nothing. So all the arguments against somebody like Joe Biden stick more, especially when he, you know, he's got all the personal corruption sc- scandals and Hunter Biden and all that stuff. And It's so easy to go after Joe Biden. It's so easy to go after Hillary Clinton. And half the stuff they say makes sense. But they don't have anything, really, to go after the young left candidates. And so they'll call them Marxists. They'll call them socialists. They'll argue against their policies. But their policies are really popular. So it's not – it's going to hurt the right. And so this is why, you know, people like me have been chopping at the bit. And I can't wait for – more of this to start happening, more of these left candidates to win because 
then you see the real battle that we've been waiting for, which is, all right, let's actually have that discussion. Let's put the right-wing ideas against the left-wing ideas, people who actually respectively believe in both, and let's see what happens. I think we're going to win that debate the overwhelming majority of the time, unless there's a flawed messenger or unless the, they don't really believe in it and they were kid- joking or they were you know, covering up the fact that they're not that far left. But if you have an actual discussion and a debate between the right-wing ideas and the left-wing ideas, the left-wing ideas are going to win. So they don't realize how easy they've had it. For decades, Republicans have had it so easy because they just beat up on these corporate Democrats because they don't believe in anything. It's almost like they're paid to lose. But now you have some real lefty candidates, and the right has already used up all the arguments and cried wolf and called Joe Biden a Marxist, and he's not that. Um, So it rings hollow when they go against the left and say that. But then also when they openly argue against the policies of the left, well, good luck with that, because you're not going to fare too well now, are you? So you could tell there's a little bit of they don't know what to do exactly at Fox News. They They created an industry out of bashing AOC, and everybody was acting like her primary challengers like, would give her a run for her money. She won with like over 70% of the vote. So the more they attack the left, honestly, quite often they look ridiculous. There are some times that they come out you know, looking fine if, if somebody on the left says something goofy and maybe gets too deep into identity politics and makes a fool of themselves. I mean, that happens from time to time. But the overwhelming majority of the time, if the left-wing people are just talking about the bread-and-butter issues and the right attacks them, you're only making them more popular. So um, they're going to keep doing this. And by the way, this strategy against Biden is just so sad. It's not going to work. Trump's doing the same thing. He's trying to, they're trying to tie Biden to the far left. And, you know, Trump's trying to tie him to all the people pulling down the statues and Antifa and everything. And it's like, if I had to come up with a strategy that I could guarantee you would not work for the Republicans, it would be that. It would be that. He's All the positive things about his campaign in 2016, where he destroyed Hillary, that, talking about NAFTA and outsourcing jobs and the Iraq war, and she's the establishment, and she's corrupt, all that stuff, gone now. Now the arguments are about, you know, the fake news media is so mean to me, Oh, my God, let's talk about statues for an hour and a half. And Joe Biden is Antifa. And it's like, that's, obviously, that's not going to work. But they're, they're in that bubble. They think it's going to work. So they don't really know exactly what the hell they're doing, but they're pushing forward with this. And it's just a sad strategy, man. It's really sad. So, you know, my response to it is, please move forward. It's making our lives a lot easier. One of my favorite stories from um, this week's election comes in my own district. So Glenn Greenwald tweeted about this. He said, congratulations to former prosecutor and son of billionaire Adam Schliefer, New York, for spending $4.5 million of his own fortune on, lo- on his losing congressional bid in New York's 17th Democratic primary, where he received 6,000 votes or $750 for each vote. And then it says... Um, Adam Schliefer, a former federal prosecutor in California, has spent more than $4 million 
on the race in the district, which covers Rockland County and parts of Westchester, that's roughly $1 million more than the six other contenders combined. Most of Mr. Schlieffer's campaign war chest comes from his own pocket, $3.7 million in total, a reflection of the wealth he derives from his father, Leonard Schlieffer, whose company, Regeneron, Regeneron, however you say that, boasts a $50 billion market capitalization. But he has received donations, too, including from real estate developers like Jeffrey Gurl, a prominent Democratic fundraiser. So this is the uh, son of privilege. His dad's a billionaire pharmaceutical guy. Blows $4 million on his race and gets absolutely routed by Mondaire Jones. Now, Mondaire Jones is a pro-Medicare for all, Bernie Sanders-endorsed gay black dude. First ever openly gay black dude in Congress. That dude routed this kid bored with a silver spoon in his mouth. Oh, I love it. Oh, it makes me feel so good. Now, since this is my district, I have, uh, you know, some, a little bit more insider information for everybody. This guy, Schlieffer, and his campaign, I kid you not, they sent out more mailers than anybody else. Like, it was like 10 times more mailers for this guy. He, like, I was seeing his face months before I knew any of the other candidates. He was just zillions and zillions of mailers, you get a mailer, and you get a mailer, and you get a mailer. And by the way, they always said nothing. (laughs) When I was researching the candidates, it was so obvious to tell which was the right choice, because some of them were bragging about, like, I was the first one to call out Russia's nefarious influence. Then he got this guy who just said no. Basically, his mailer was like, Donald Trump, he's bad. Oh, thank you, Adam. Oh, my God, thank you. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I really appreciate it. (laughs) So he sends out all these mailers way before anybody else, spends so much more money, and just gets absolutely crushed by a gay black dude who's for Medicare for all. (laughs) And this is why, you know, it's, um, it's so ridiculous that the media is downplaying the left's victories. Because they're saying, oh, no, no, it's not about, it's not about you know, these left-wing ideas. No, 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 no. It's about old versus new. Okay, but Nita Lowy, who's the sitting congresswoman in this district who's retiring, she's leaving so all of the candidates are new. Why is it that the lefty candidate won? Maybe there's something to this idea. That especially during a pandemic and a depression, if you run on ideas that actually will materially help people, you're probably going to do well. And that's what happened. So the left winning is great, but the left winning and also embarrassing a privileged kid with a silver spoon in his mouth whose dad is a billionaire pharmaceutical guy. Oh, I love that. I've never been more proud of my state. (laughs) I've never been more proud of my state. I've never been more proud of my district because I'm not going to lie. I thought that, you know, Nita Lowy's not the best, and I was thinking she'll probably be replaced by somebody who's not the best. But to see Mondaire just rout him, crushed him by like 25 points, (laughs) and he had every, this guy had every advantage. 
But hey, when you stand for nothing, I guess people saw through them. So that's glorious. That's wonderful. This is one of my favorite stories from the election season. And I hope we get a million more stories like this moving forward. Next. President Obama did a live stream to help Joe Biden for his 2020 campaign. Joe Biden is hiding in his basement. He's been doing that for a while. By the way, I told you guys this a thousand times. I was the first one to say this. Good. That's the strategy that he would need to do to win. Just hide him. It worked in the primary. There's no reason it wouldn't work in the general. The numbers keep going more and more in Biden's favor. So if I was running his campaign, I'd be like, yeah, I don't even know if I, I might just send out Obama himself to do the fundraiser and not even have Joe involved. (laughs) Where's Joe? He's busy. You know, he's got stuff he's got to do. Meanwhile, he's at home eating cookie dough ice cream, taking a nap on the couch. Um, But anyway, so they were together here. This was a a live stream to do some fundraising. And during the live stream, here's what Obama said, which became news for obvious reasons. In 2008, 2009. Uh, And we were going through the worst uh, recession since the Great Depression, Uh, a massive financial crisis. We were still in the midst of two wars. Uh, you know, we, I think, were overcoming a decade in which the possibilities of common work and common purpose had been diminished and downgraded, and uh, government had been uh, starved of the resources that were needed to make us a more equal and just and uh, uh, compassionate society. Uh, and yet, I have to say that the, the foundation stones, the institutions that we had in place, uh, were still uh, more or less intact. Uh, my predecessor, who I disagreed with uh, on a whole host of issues, uh, still had a basic regard for the rule of law and the importance of our institutions democracy. Uh, on the world stage, there was still a sense that America needed to lead. They're rehabilitating Bush. Make no mistake about it, this means they will rehabilitate Trump in the future. Of course they will. Because everybody realized at the time how terrible Bush was. Bush had an approval rating that was like, I think, under 30%. It may have been like 28%. And Cheney's was even lower. At the time, everybody understood, oh, my God, this is really bad. But now, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And so they always rehabilitate the former Republican president in order to make the current Republican president look worse. You have to stop doing this. This impulse is totally destructive. And it makes everybody super cynical about politics, people who actually follow this stuff and care. Because everything he said there was total BS. Oh, our institutions were intact, and I think, you know, Bush cared about rule of law. Rule of law? The Patriot Act illegally spied on Americans. That's what it did. The whole point of it was to illegally spy. We had drone deaths, uh, and the overwhelming majority of the deaths were civilians. We had torture guys, as Obama famously said, uh, we tortured some folks. 
We tortured some folks. Yes, they tortured people. Look at Abu Ghraib, the big scandal with Abu Ghraib. I mean, that's supposed to be a violation of the Eighth Amendment beyond the realm of that which is acceptable. We literally used torture methods that were from communist China, communist Chinese manuals on how to torture. That's what we did. We, by the way, put sentenced to death Japanese soldiers who tortured our soldiers in World War II. We had a trial. We found them guilty. We sentenced them to death for torture. Then we tortured. And by the way, a lot of the people who we did torture were innocent. Not that it matters, even if they're guilty. You're not supposed to torture as a matter of principle. But, you know, there were a famous example, the guy Marat Kurnaz, who was held. He was a German citizen, held against his will, I believe at Guantanamo Bay. He was tortured. He was totally innocent, didn't do anything wrong. A lot of the people who we held at Guantanamo Bay were given to us by warlords in Afghanistan who we made a deal with. And we thought, oh, the warlords are going to give us al-Qaeda. They didn't give us al-Qaeda. They rounded up their enemies, gave them to us, and said, yeah, that's al-Qaeda. And we tortured them. And he says, Obama says, oh, I mean, come on. We, at least with Bush, we cared about rule of law. Rule of law? We literally waged an illegal war against a country that didn't attack us based on lies. I can't think of a bigger violation of rule of law than waging an illegal war and killing minimum 200,000 civilians in the process. And again, lying about it to cover it up, saying, oh my God, Saddam did 9-11, he was involved with Al-Qaeda and all this, and I went to the UN, Colin Powell showing the vial. See, he's creating weapons of mass destruction. We have it right here, can't you see? By the way, the UN did not approve that war. It was an illegal war under international law. But we did it anyway. So not only, not only does George Bush not care about the rule of law, he actually is still worse than Trump. Now that's not, I need, to under, I need you everybody to understand something. I'm not downplaying how bad Trump is. If we're doing a thing on a score of 0 to 100, if it's a test, maybe Trump gets a grade of 30 and Bush gets a grade of 20. So they're still both failing grades. They're still both absolutely abysmal. But my point is, you have to stop rehabilitating former Republican presidents and war criminals just to own Trump. And we're seeing a, a, an even better example of this now with what's happening with John Bolton's book. In polite society, John Bolton is being accepted back in with open arms, even though he's the hawk's hawk. He's the most aggressive neocon you could possibly imagine. It's him and Dick Cheney up there. He wants to wage war endlessly. He thinks we should be the police of the world, a.k.a. the bully of the world, the imperial power that does whatever we want, steals oil from Venezuela. That's the new one that he admitted on Fox Business within the past year or two. I mean, guys, I, we have to stop with this. Either everything matters or it doesn't. And in my mind, it matters that over you know, 200,000 innocent civilians in Iraq were killed. That matters to me, especially since I'm paying for it with my tax money. That matters to me. It has to matter that we illegally and unconstitutionally did torture. That has to matter. You can't just gloss over that and act like, no, 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 actually, Bush cares about our institutions. Yes, and he cares about rule of law. Yes. And you know why they do this, right? Not just to own Trump, but also because the thing that pisses them off most about Trump is not the violations of international law and, you know, being a war criminal. That stuff doesn't bother them because they're all war criminals. Obama's a war criminal. It bothers them that he violates decorum and civility. 
They hate the fact that he doesn't put the smiley face on the, the U.S. empire. And they hate the fact that he's embarrassing to the rest of the world. In other words, he doesn't look like a boss. He doesn't act like a boss. He doesn't come across as professional. He doesn't have the BS, you know, American exceptionalism thing going on where he can pretend to have it all together, pretend to give a unifying speech in a tough time. They hate that he has no filter. They hate that he's divisive. It's the fact that he's a ruffian. This is what they don't like about him, that he seems savage and barbarian in his... That's what they don't like about him. That's what they can't get over. He's ripping the mask off the empire. And so that's the biggest sin to them, is that, like, you're embarrassing us in front of the world. Like, yes, keep the status quo going, keep business as usual going, continue being a war criminal, continue doing all these things that are immoral. But if you give a good speech and you're polite and you have decorum, well, then you're welcomed in the club. And if George W. Bush can be welcomed in the club, we know for damn sure that Trump eventually will be welcomed in the club, too. You know, it's going to be like, um, it's going to be like 2048, and there's going to be President Jacob Wall, and there's going to be articles written about how this isn't like the good old days of Trump, where at least we know Trump believed in rule of law and our institutions. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. So it drives me crazy, man. This stuff drives me crazy. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. Obama's more than happy to defend Bush, who is honestly one of the worst U.S. presidents of all time. All right, I'm going to take a break. When I come back, Trump gave a speech to Turning Point USA. We're going to talk about that. And um, we're also going to talk about Sanjay Gupta is floored at the U.S. response to coronavirus. You don't want to miss that. Stay right there. We'll be back with all that and much more.
I am back, bitch. All right. Trump is going to deflect from police brutality, um, but he does it in a clunky way. I wonder who wrote this speech for him. I really do. All right, let me set this up for you. Trump gave a speech to Turning Points USA, Talking Points USA, Turning Points USA, whatever. It's the Charlie Kirk group. Um, And his team came up with what they think is a stellar response to these police protests. But really, it's just dressing up a famous old right-wing talking point. Let's watch. Defund and abolish our police. Think of it. Defund and abolish is now their theme. And who preside over the violence and mayhem of the 20 most dangerous cities in America, 20 for 20, 20 most dangerous, run by Democrats, and it'll happen to our country if a guy like Joe Biden gets in. Because Joe Biden has no control over what's happening. They won't even be talking to him. The murder rate in Detroit and Baltimore is higher than that of El Salvador, Guatemala, or Afghanistan. But the left launches no protests over these travesties, the travesties, because it doesn't serve their radical agenda. Think of that, tougher than Afghanistan, all run by Democrats. So what he's doing is he's talking about the police protests, the um, the response to the George Floyd killing, and um, he's saying, well, look at Detroit and look at Baltimore and look at Chicago and, like, the murder rate there is really high. I don't see the left protesting that. So it's the old... Well, what about black-on-black crime? Listen, the reason why they're protesting these police murders is because the police are supposed to protect and serve. And in many communities, they feel more like an occupying army. And, you know, in so many instances, you have unarmed people who are killed, and people want accountability. People want justice. They don't want this to happen in the first place, but if it does happen, they want the person locked up. And so that's why there's, it's logical to protest police murders because it's the state, and the state is supposed to represent the people. And if the state is killing the people, it's most definitely not that. So, of course, it makes sense to protest. And This is a dodge. This is a deflection to say, well, what about the the murder rate in Detroit and Baltimore and Chicago? Why are you not, you know, protesting black-on-black crime? And the response to that, guys, is it actually is only the left, in my experience, talking about those problems in those cities. Because what's the root of it? What's the root of it? Well, in those cities, it's gang violence. So it, it, it usually involves the drug trade. So how do you stop that violence? Well, first and foremost, you end the drug war. The reason why it's so violent is because it's against the law, which means it's pushed underground, which means, of course, there's going to be 
criminal gangs associated with it because those are the only people who are allowed to sell it, the criminal gangs. The exact same thing happened with prohibition. As soon as you made alcohol illegal, it went underground, and the mafia started you know, doing that business. And you know the fallout. The murder rate shot up. The crime rate shot up. And there were, you know, shootouts in the streets over this underground black market. So the answer is to end the drug war. What else is the answer? Get to the root problem, which is the poverty and the degradation. So how do you address that? You do a jobs program. You have free education. You have community centers where people could go and and do something productive with their time so they're not out on the streets. So the answer to these problems is to end the drug war and do social democratic reforms. Who's talking about ending the drug war and who's talking about doing social democratic reforms? I'll wait. The left. See, that's the thing is that's how you address that. You don't address gang violence and murders by just protesting. That's not going to do anything because the gangs are not responsive to protests. But you know who is? The government. So it makes sense to protest to stop police brutality because the government has to be responsive to the people, or at least to some degree they're going to be forced into doing something, some kind of reform and some better stuff as a result of the protest. Gangs are not going to be responsive to protest. So it doesn't make sense to go out in the street to protest, you know, whatever, the murder rate in Detroit or whatever. The way you address that is to end the drug war, invest in the community, and, you know, have free education, have community centers so people can do something productive with their time, have a jobs program, have a living wage so people don't need to get into an underground black market in order to survive. That's how you address it. So, but see, this, they're so lazy. Like, these right-wing talking points are so lazy, and it's just a slap in the face. That's nothing but a dodge to protect the, the cops. That's all that is. Oh, you're protesting police violence. Well, what about Detroit and Baltimore? Hmm? They think that's like a got you. Um, and then the other thing, he loves to bring up the, well, 20 for 20 of the, you know, the most violent cities are run by Democrats. Well, again, it gets back to cities are run by Democrats usually because cities lean left, uh, you know, areas that are outside of the cities don't. They usually lean right. So there's a reason for that. To say that, well, the cities that are the most violent are run by Democrats, it's a little redundant because cities are run by Democrats as a general rule. Um, But beyond that, I just explained why that is. It's because of the drug war and the illegal drug trade. And so the gang violence that's associated with that. There are ways to fight that, but the Republicans block all the ways to fight that. And then the other thing is I hate to the singling out, because it's so hacky. It's like everybody knows, for example, that when you look at the entire country and you go state by state, the blue states are net taxpayers and the red states are net tax receivers. So that means, according to their own vernacular, they would call themselves welfare queens. But, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that as a strike against them because we're one country, we're one nation, and the money should go to the people who need the help. So I'm not using that against them. I could easily come out here and be like, well, Mississippi is the poorest state in the union, and that's all 
That's all Republicans at every level. Aha! Like, that. no, that's, I could say that, but I'm not going to say that because I'm not trying to play got you. Like, but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to play got you. 20 for 20 of the cities that have the most violence are Democratic. And <laughs> so it's, he's too, this strategy that he's going with, too divisive, and it's too deep in that right-wing bubble. And he's down, and he keeps going further and further down in the polls. And stuff like this is the reason why. At a time when any normal president would try to unify, try to unite the people, try to calm and ease tensions, he's going in the other direction. He's just doing Fox News and far-right talking points to try to play gotcha. Not trying to sympathize or understand where protesters are coming from. Or, I mean, this is pathetic, man. But it's exactly what I'd expect. That, I mean, what he did, he just did the, oh, yeah, you want to protest police brutality? Well, what about black-on-black crime? That talking point will never die, even though you just got the exact answer as to why that's absurd right here. All right, next. I cannot wait to dive into this one. My favorite stories are the ones that other people would look at and shy away from. The ones that other people look at and go, I don't know, man. That one's too contentious. Don't want to touch it. It's radioactive. I look at that and go, yummy, yummy in my tummy. Let's talk about this. So um, this really, really, really blew up on Twitter the other night. And I wanted to weigh in and give everybody my two cents. So I believe this is in Newsweek. They say the following. Writer and activist Sean King announced Monday that he supports the destruction of statues that depict white Jesus. King, who has been an outspoken supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement, tweeted his remarks on Monday. He noted that historians believe Jesus likely had the appearance of people who typically lived in the Middle East during his time, rather than the white man who is often depicted in Christian iconography. Quote, yes, I think the statues of the white European they claim is Jesus should also come down, King tweeted. They are a form of white supremacy, always have been. In the Bible, when the family of Jesus wanted to hide and blend in, guess where they went? Egypt, not Denmark, he added. Tear them down. The comments quickly drew condemnation from some on the platform, including several prominent conservative figures. So I put this up as the graphic here just so everybody could see what he's referring to because it actually is true that researchers have looked into the question of, okay, if Jesus existed, let's just assume for a second that he did exist. Well, we know the region he came out of, and so we know what people in that region look like and what they sound like and all that. And so what would Jesus have looked like if he actually existed? And the answer is right there. He would look like that. Now, again, that's researchers who looked into this and, you know, reported on it. And, I mean, you could like or dislike the findings of that, but I do think the findings of that are totally legitimate. I don't know how anybody could really disagree with that. He's from that region, so he's going to look like that. I mean, it is what it is. Um, So that's the first point. Now, I will say, before I get into responding exactly to Sean here, let's talk a little bit about the whole statue thing, because... It already happened, and it's what I was talking about from early on. So it started with just the Confederate statues, and, you know, my position on that, I think, is like 
most reasonable people who get it. Like, I look at that and I go, yeah, I mean, I get it. You're, you're in a southern state that was part of the Confederacy, and you have these statues to these Confederate leaders, Confederate generals, sometimes prominent slave runners. Um, and you have, like, very high and dense populations of, of black folks and effectively, it's their government that's supposed to represent them, and they're literally putting up monuments to what is effectively their enslavement. Like you could try to dress it up as much as you want. Oh, it's about states' rights or whatever when it comes to the Civil War. But the fact of the matter is, it, it's slavery. Like, they wanted the right, states' rights, for people to own other people. That's what they wanted. So, like, when you have Confederate generals and whatnot, like, I get it that when people say, no, 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 it's about history, it's not about that. If you want to talk about two generations removed and some little kid is taught from when he's a kid, no, 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 it's about history, we're against slavery, but it's about history, then maybe it develops into that somewhat more benign thing over time. I'm not denying that, but you cannot deny the, orig the origin of it. I I'm like Trump, I can't say the word origin. The origin of it. And the origin is, yeah, it's about, it was about slavery. That's what it was about. And I don't know why people get triggered by that fact. It's it, like, just own it. That's what it is. That's what it was about. I, I, as I said previously, I almost have more respect for the people who own it and still say they want to rep it than people who don't own it but want to rep it. Like with the NASCAR and the Confederate flag thing, so many responses were like, no, 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 it's not about that. But I had more respect for the person who was like, well, yes, it is about that. And I still would like to apply it because at least that person's being honest. Because in the case of that Confederate flag, the one that we all think of as the Confederate flag, that came about in the 1960s specifically as a response to the Civil Rights Act. It was the flag that they used to say, forget the Civil Rights Act. We disagree. We want segregation. That was the whole point of that flag because that wasn't the original conservative flag. Or, or, excuse me, Confederate flag, not conservative flag. Um, that wasn't the original one. But it, that was the one that came about in the 1960s specifically as an FU to Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. So I almost respect the people who just wear it on their sleeve more. But anyway, so it started with the Confederate statues. And I and most people were like, yeah, I get it. Now, I think they should be in a museum because, you know, I'm fine with preserving it for that educational purpose. You know, you have to learn your history to not repeat it. So I'm fine with it in museums. Some people would disagree with me on that. Whatever, that's fine. But I understand taking it down. Sure, take down the Confederate statues. But then I told you guys, in the subsequent conversations we had, it's not going to stop just there, because there actually is a reasonable debate to be had about going further than that. So, namely, what do you do with founding fathers, who some of them were genuinely brilliant in some ways, but were also slave owners? So do you say, yeah, the fact that they were slave owners overrides any of the other good stuff they did, so yeah, take the, those statues down too. Now, that sounds extreme, and that's definitely against what the majority of the population would say. I think most people would say, leave the Founding Fathers up. But there, that is somewhat of a reasonable argument to say, hey, they're slave owners. There's no re like, why would we put up a statue of a slave-owning Founding Father when we could have a statue of Martin Luther King in his place, for example, right? But the thing is, and I told you, I predicted this. See, now it's become not just take down the Confederate statues, not just take down the Founding Father statues, but now it's also, <laughs> and it's almost funny to say it, but it's true. Now it's just, it's morphed into take down statues, like all statues. Now, listen, I don't, I don't really care. I really don't. I don't care one way or the other. Um, but 
let's not pretend like the people doing it have some sort of coherent philosophy as to what they're doing. Because one of the things that happened recently was they went after Statue of Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves. Now, I somewhat get it because there was a, a slave portion of that statue where it was like a crawling slave who looked desperate and like part of the Abraham Lincoln statue. And people were like, that slave thing next to him is weird or whatever. Um, but then it also went to Ulysses S. Grant, the general who defeated the Confederacy. <laughs> so you have... So now it's not just take down the Confederate statues, it's also take down the Founding Fathers and take down the people who specifically, you know, defeated the Confederacy, and it's going to keep going. It's going to be, like there was another one, I forget what the name of the person of the statue was, but this person was killed while fighting slavery, and he was a prominent anti, anti-slavery activist. And that was, it wasn't like, oh, that's ancillary to his story. No. His life was about fighting against slavery, and that statue or monument or whatever was defaced and pulled down. So my point is, let's not pretend like the people pulling down the statues have some sort of coherent, overall, overarching philosophy that they're implementing, and that they've really thought through this philosophical question as to, like, okay, you know, um, we should be anti-all statues and okay, then what's your thoughts on the flag? What's your thoughts on the bald eagle and other American symbols and whatnot? Should that all come down too? And if that comes down, are we already going from step one to step 1067, which is abolish the nation state and therefore all nation states? In other words, yes, there's an argument to be made that, yeah, this is a mob mentality. It's become a mob mentality, and they're not limiting the scope of what they're doing to just the Confederate statues. It's going way beyond that. Now, again, I do think there's reasonable philosophical conversations to be had around this topic, but my point is they are not having those reasonable philosophical – philosophical? They're not having those philosophy conversations. Um, they're just acting like a mob and pulling down everything in sight, and we knew it was going to develop to this point, and this is almost a little bit of an I told you so moment. So now to get back to the Sean King thing. So – What I don't understand is this. I thought that the whole point was, and I thought everybody understood, well, if you're talking about pulling down statues, it's government statues. It's on public property paid for by tax money. And so everybody understands that, well, we have a the people have a right to weigh in on the statues that are up there on our property paid for with our money. All that's, it's, a, it's the collective. It's a public statue. And to my knowledge, all the statues, whether you agree or disagree with them coming down, whoever it may be, Confederates, Founding Fathers, whatever, that's all on public property. When you start getting into pulling down statues on private property, then that that is against that on, on top of breaking laws that's like against the first amendment people have a first amendment right to display whatever the hell they want to display that's what a free country is that's what free speech is so in other words even if you want to pull down the confederate statue on public property which i, I agree with no problem with that at all if somebody has a confederate statue on their private property there is that it's not debatable they get to keep that up because that's what freedom is. In the same way, if somebody wanted to, they could fly a flag of the hammer and sickle. 
They can build a statue to Stalin for all I care. It's on their property. They're able to do it. The public doesn't have a say as to what somebody does with their private property. So, and now Sean King is saying, like, pull down the statues that depict white Jesus, but there are no public statues that depict white Jesus because we have separation of church and state. It's all private. It's all, like, churches or whatever. You can't pull down stuff that's part of a church. And, and the broader point is this, too. Putting aside the legality of it and whether or not it makes sense, you've got to leave the private stuff up because that's free country. You can put up whatever the hell you want to put up. But every single culture and society depicts their gods, their leaders in their own image. So, in other words, there's plenty of pictures of and representations of black Jesus. The actual Jesus was Middle Eastern. Right. So there's, you know, insofar as there's, you know, like Lebanese Christians, for example, they probably depict him looking like he's Middle Eastern and white hippie Jesus. While it's totally historically fraudulent. This is what a majority white population depicted Jesus as. I don't. Religion is effectively made up anyway. So who cares? They made up another aspect of it. Yes. If Jesus existed, Jesus would have looked like that for sure. That's a fact. But we're talking about, you know, it's religion. Religion is made up and people have their own twists and and interpretations on it and whatnot. And that's freedom of religion. And people could say or do whatever the hell they want to do. So even though Jesus, if he existed, did not look like this, is that flat white supremacy? No. Are there evangelical Christian fundamentalists who are white supremacists who happen to worship this Jesus? Of course. The KKK are famously Christian, and they think Jesus looked like hippie Jesus. So there are instances of that. But everybody, like, you know, my mom, for example, is a Catholic, right? I was raised Catholic. I'm not religious at all, obviously, anymore. But my mom's a Catholic. You know, they have hippie white Jesus in in her church. And if you told her, oh, this is white supremacy, that you're worshiping this God, she would look at you like, what? I don't, what? And you could even explain to her, like, yeah, the actual Jesus, if he existed, looked like that. And she'd be like, oh, okay. But it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's religion. (laughs) Like, people could say or do or worship or not worship, whatever the hell they want to worship. That's, again, part of religious freedom. So I don't, I mean, it really is a divisive thing to go down. And it's a picking a battle that's totally unnecessary. And listen, Sean King was a, a Bernie Sanders surrogate. And... I know him, and he actually cares a lot about, like, Medicare for all and all the economic stuff that I care about. And so I don't, like, I got nothing against him. I got nothing against him at all. But, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, why? Why? I mean, again, the first point is the debate about pulling down statues should be limited to just public property because that's the debate where it makes sense to have the conversation, because that's our property. Once you get into, no, I want to pull it down on private property, you lost me already, because that's that's illegal, that's unconstitutional. You can't just go around pulling down stuff that's on somebody, that's somebody else's, that makes no sense. Um, But beyond that, yes, actual Jesus would have looked like this if he existed, but who cares? Cultures always depict, you know, their leaders, their gods in their own image. And so 
majority white population has depicted Jesus as white. Who cares? <laughs> not all the people who worship white Jesus are white supremacists, and that is not white supremacy full stop. So I just I think it's um, needlessly divisive and it's give it's so much fodder for the right. Not that it should matter if you're right in principle and you're giving the right fodder, but I don't think it's right in principle and you are giving the right fodder. So now part of, you know, Trump was even talking about it the other day. He's added it as a line in his speeches. The left-wing mobs roving around, pulling down your beautiful founding fathers, statues of your founding fathers. They want to they wanna pull down Jesus. He said something like that. Pull down statues of Jesus. And it's like, wow, okay. So now we're getting a little bit silly here. Now we're getting ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I would disagree. People have a right to worship whoever they want to worship. That's freedom of religion. Even if the origins of it are not good, you can look at any religion, and origins are questionable as hell. Religions, by and large, there's an element of it bathed in blood throughout history, including Christianity. Um, and then there's also the element of, like, good people doing good things in the name of their religion. So to just, you know, writ large kind of write off the notion and say nobody pull down all the statues of this god because I don't like the way that this god's depicted, needlessly authoritarian, it's an overreach, and um, it is a violation of people's fundamental freedoms. So I wouldn't open this door or go down this path at all. All right, next. Sanjay Gupta. This story is actually one of the most important of the day, I think. Sanjay Gupta was absolutely floored at the current state of COVID-19 in the U.S. and the way that we're reacting. Uh, So I'll play this video here for you. Look at He's flabbergasted. Look at how, like, taken aback he is. This is really stunning to watch, especially since, you know, he's a doctor, you know he's an expert, and he can't believe what he's witnessing. And now Arizona has got real problems. I mean, Arizona's positivity rate is higher than 20%. They're seeing hospitalizations increase. They're running out of ICU beds. And I don't know if we have the picture we can pull up. The president, what did he do? He went to Phoenix. I mean, he went to one of the hot spots, if not the biggest hotspot in the country right now, in the coronavirus outbreak, and he gave a speech in a crowded room. There's no space between these people there, many of whom, most of whom, according to our reporters in the room, were not wearing masks. Now, they were young people. Is that going to protect them from spreading the virus? What's going to happen from this event? I, I, I don't... <laughs> I don't even know what to say anymore about this sort of stuff. I mean, this is, to me, it's like like a bunch of people being outside in the middle of a hurricane, right? I mean, you can't see this virus. Uh, You don't feel it. Uh, You you, you may incubate in your body for 14 days, but it makes it no less of a storm. We're being really, really silly. We're being ridiculous at this point with these types of things. That is the, that's the worst-case scenario. I mean, having a large indoor event, unmasked, people not physically distancing in the midst of a pandemic uh, with a very, very contagious virus out there. The virus hasn't changed. We know the virus is contagious. It, it just it, 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 defies, it defies logic. History books will be written about things like this, and those will not be fun history books to read. I mean, it's, it's going to be... Um, we're not going to be judged very favorably. 
This is a point that I made the other day on Kyle and Corin, and I'm perpetually amazed by it day by day. It really happened that we, for like a couple months, we locked everything down and everybody recognized, you know, the fight we had on our hands. And then at a certain point, it really appears like all of society went, eh, we're done with this. And everything just kind of, they tried to go back to normal. Well, guess what? We just got this news here. 36,358 new cases in one day. A new record. So we just had the single day record for coronavirus cases. The single day record for coronavirus cases. We just had it. We're talking about every, like the states are slowly opening up in different phases now. And we just hit the single day record. Florida is getting hammered. Texas is getting hammered. Arizona is getting hammered. Apparently, in those places, you go, you know, you walk around and you realize nobody's wearing a mask and nobody's social distancing. In the case of Trump, okay, he started his Tulsa rally. He did his Tulsa rally. That was literally a day after the record number of COVID cases hit Oklahoma. He did his rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then now he did it in Phoenix, Arizona. Again, a hotbed of it. I don't know if it's Phoenix, but it's in Arizona. It's a hotbed of COVID. Hotbed. And nobody's social distancing. Nobody's wearing masks. And he's just giving this speech in this indoor enclosed area. The worst possible thing you could do in a pandemic is be in a poorly ventilated indoor area with a lot of people. It's the worst thing you could do. That's the worst thing you could do. And Sanjay Gupta is absolutely... He's just, he can't wrap his mind around what we're witnessing right now. Because guess what? The numbers are going to keep going up. Yeah. And we really got to a point where we were like, eh, we're done. We're not doing it anymore. And by the way, the answers are a lot more simple than we previously thought. You know, I was reading about this last night because I'm just as floored as Sanjay Gupta is. And get this. So Japan, you know what they did? And I don't know if it was cultural or if it was a law, but basically everybody wears a mask. Everybody. And that might not be an exaggeration. Eight out of ten, nine out of ten people. They didn't shut down. And you know how many coronavirus deaths they have? Under a thousand. They didn't shut down, and the only thing they do is everybody wears a mask, and there's, you know, some reasonable level of social distancing. People try to stay away as much as possible. That's it. Meanwhile, in this country, we shut things down. We didn't help people sufficiently. You know, the mask thing is huge because, again, Texas, Florida, Arizona, and many places around this country, people are just like, there's now, now masks are political. And the right, many on the right, I don't want to smear all conservatives, because there's plenty, I'm sure, that are reasonable in wearing masks. But many on the right have now taken this position that, like, it's tyrannical to wear a mask, or it somehow makes you weak, or whatever it may be. Okay, well, guys, we have over 120,000 deaths from this virus. We have over 2 million Americans who have had this virus. This is the official numbers. The real numbers are way higher. That's two Vietnams in terms of deaths so far, and now we just hit a single-day record, and it's going to keep going up. You know what's happening in my state? New York was hardest hit. 
we did not do a good job with this, especially because we're all on top of each other in New York City, and it's just perfect conditions for a Petri dish for the virus to spread. But you know what we've done since we were hardest hit? The only difference that I see for sure is that everywhere I go, where you're going inside, you go to the grocery store, you go to any enclosed area, everybody's wearing a mask. You don't see a single person without a mask. And you know what happened to our numbers? They plummeted. They went straight down. Because at a certain point, everybody realized how serious it is, and then everybody wore a mask. I mean, that's the answer. And even that we can't do. Even that we didn't do. And now we're experiencing an incredible resurgence of it. And listen, man, you have to say, I mean, all those press conferences Trump did day in, day out, day in, day out, talking to people about the virus, and we're doing this, and we're doing that, and we're doing this. Now they're even going to stop the free testing. That case has exploded and hit a new record. And he's out there doing rallies, and people aren't socially distancing. Nobody's wearing a mask. It's like we live in a twilight zone, man. He's in serious, serious trouble. Because as I've said a million times, you can talk about statues as much as you want. You can talk about the culture war and the fake news media and Sleepy Joe's just like Antifa. That's what's going on. You can talk about all that all you want. When you have a pandemic that is spreading even further and you've basically given up even trying to fight back against it. And when you have an economic depression, what do you think is going to happen? Even the most skilled, savvy politician ever cannot overcome that political reality. A pandemic that's getting worse and worse, and you basically gave up fighting, and an economic depression. How are you going to override that? You can't. So, it, I mean, and this is devastating. I don't know, like, the number of people that we're losing from COVID, it's like a war. We're in a war right now. And they don't care anymore. They just gave up. And everybody seemingly gave up. So, I'll tell you guys, I'll warn you guys, if you're going to the grocery store, if you're going to work and, you know, you're around other people inside, you got to wear a mask. you got to do it. If you're outside and you're socially distancing, you don't have to. But in all other circumstances, wear a mask. you got to wear a mask, man. It's just going to get worse and worse. You know, the heat helps stop the spread of the regular flu. But it's not stopping with the coronavirus. The cases are getting worse and worse. So you got to take precautions, because guess what? The government ain't there to help you. They're not doing Dickie McGee's acts now. And now, now the plan is just ignore it. Just ignore it. I feel exactly like Sanjay Gupta does in this clip. He's like, I don't even know what to say. I, I, I've never seen anything like this. And every other country, every other country, if you look at the chart, every other country is just kicking our ass. It's unbelievable. Like, every other country was somewhat reasonable in their response. I mean, there were variations, and there's a spectrum. But, like, you see that the U.S. just couldn't – society has fallen apart. We can't even do basic, reasonable things. And it is unique to this country. I hate to tell you, maybe us in Brazil are the only two that can't do very simple things to fight back against the virus. Every other country got it under control to one extent or another. Us, we couldn't even do basic things. It really is stunning. When you look at that chart and notice that we're, we stand alone in the world in how terrible we're responding to this. So there you go. There's your American exceptionalism. Mark Cuban went on Sean Hannity's show and they debated Trump versus Biden. 
Now, I'm, of course, on the record as despising both of them for, you know, substantive policy reasons. This back and forth is interesting to me, and overall I'd say it didn't go well for Sean. Let's take a look and then we'll discuss. All right, so you and I talked about Trump. You've been on the program now a couple of times. Now I want to talk to you about Biden. First question, do you believe that he has the strength, the stamina, the mental acuity, the alertness to be taking on what is the toughest job in the world, being the president of the United States? Do you in your heart believe he does? 100%, absolutely, no question about it. Okay. Donald Trump doesn't want to run a country. He wants to run a campaign. Joe Biden actually wants to run a country. Okay, that's you. Give me a bumper sticker. I just asked, you told me how you feel about Trump and how what you like and dislike. Yeah. You were honest. You said he did a lot of good things too. Now, here's my next question. Joe sure. Biden has been on the political scene for 50 years. Now, yeah. after Ferguson, Baltimore, Cambridge, and a lot of incidents, he didn't put in police reforms. Donald Trump did that. Uh, he was talking about predators in '94. Donald Trump is the one that did criminal justice and prison reform. Donald Trump did opportunity. Uh, zones, not Joe or Barack. Donald Trump uh, gave us record low after record low unemployment for every minority group in the country, not Joe and not Barack. And my question is that's all fact. That's all fact. Yeah, my you, question, gave you gave me the bumper stickers, okay? But look, on well, the those are facts. Side, that's fair, but you can say the exact same thing about every single Republican senator. Right okay, moment. but they're not running for president. I'm asking you this. Joe's been in, Joe's been in office 50, wait a minute, 50 years. He was vice president for eight years. Trump did that, not Joe. So tell me what Joe, tell me, here's the question. Tell me what Joe has done that you're proud of that qualifies him to be president after 50 years. He wasn't my senator of Delaware. I don't know. But it was he was your vice president. Sean, Sean, it was a, it's a problem for all senators. The question you ask when you vote for somebody is what did they vice president. do? It was vice president eight years. What did he do? He had eight years. Okay, well, let's say he was a big part of Obamacare, the ACA. Here we are, Sean. You've got millions, if not tens of millions of people losing their employer's insurance. Donald Trump has not said a word. In fact, year one. Sean, not only did not say a word about health care, he's looking to end the ACA with no replacement. Okay, so let me ask you this. Right, this is important. I really want an answer. So in eight sure. years, the Obama-Biden record is 13 million more Americans on food stamps, 8 million more in poverty, the lowest labor participation rate since the 70s, and Donald Trump's record pre-corona, Record low unemployment, African-Americans, fact, Hispanic-Americans, fact, Asian-Americans, youth unemployment, women in the workplace. So he's only been in office for less than four years. That's like saying, okay, Obama, Obama and Biden, they took over after the last really oh. bad election and grew the economy continuously. But when they had a, a, um, a problem to solve, which was the Great Recession 12 years ago, they solved it. Now where are, where are we now? We are not solving it. We've had solved and that's a beautiful thing. We're going in the right direction. Wait, Mark, we just had two and a half million new jobs and a record retail sales in the history of the country. Yes. 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 Donald Trump did that, not Biden, in the basement. You know what? I explained it to my kids. I explained it to my kids. When your 
So, you know, listen, just so everybody understands, obviously I dislike Sean Hannity, but I actually don't even like Mark Cuban that much. One time me and him got into a back and forth on Twitter. Um, ideologically, he's right-leaning, um, and so there's really not much agreement between me and him, or at the very least you could say he's like a neoliberal. Uh, so I don't love the guy, but even he was able to dismantle Sean Hannity's BS. So let's go through it. I think his first point is actually exactly correct when he says, well, Donald Trump loves campaigning and not governing. Yeah, I think that's true. I think he loves campaigning, and I don't think he loves governing, uh, which is why there was that story years ago that after Trump got the nomination, he had reached out to John Kasich to say, will you be my VP, and you basically run the country. I'm just going to go all around the country doing my rallies. And why he delegates stuff to people, and he tries not to think about it. Like, Wall Street basically came up. Goldman Sachs came up with that tax plan, which gave 83% of the benefits to the top 1%. This is when Trump ran an anti-establishment campaign, and he handed over the, the tax policy to the establishment. This is who he is. He doesn't like governing. He just likes doing the rallies and getting the adulation and the support and, and you know, the fawning love from his people. So I think that's right. Trump loves campaigning. He doesn't love governing. Now, I actually think that Hannity's right in the very narrow sense that, yeah, Biden is in cognitive decline and he's not up to the job. But, you know, then again, Donald Trump, if you have massive ideological disagreements with Trump, then you're not going to support Trump. doesn't matter that, you know, Biden's in cognitive decline. If you look at everything Trump's doing and you ideologically disagree with him, it becomes less relevant, that other part. So, you know, there's the next part they go, Trump did criminal justice reform. This is what this is what Hannity said. Trump did criminal justice reform and you know, Biden didn't Biden did the crime bill. Now that's a perfectly fair point. That's a perfectly fair point. It's one of the few things I give Trump credit for doing criminal justice reform. And, you know, going after Biden for the crime bill makes perfect sense. It's led to mass incarceration. But and this is what Mark Cuba pointed out. Sean, you, if you go back and look at Sean Hannity and his take on the crime bill back then, he's, I'm sure he supported it. And Cuban points out every Republican supported it. So was Sean Hannity saying all the Republicans were wrong back then? No, he supported it. So which is it? what is it that you believe, Sean? Because if he's being honest, he probably believes in the crime bill because he's a tough-on-crime guy which would mean Hannity should actually prefer Biden on this. See, I'll admit, I prefer Trump criminal justice reform to Biden, at least insofar as he did the First Step Act and Biden did the crime bill. I can admit that because I'm not a hack. Sean Hannity's a hack. If he's being honest about his true opinion, he'd say, yeah, I prefer Biden because I like the crime bill. I don't want criminal justice reform. If Obama had done that same criminal justice reform bill that Trump did, Sean Hannity would hate it. And he did. He actually did a segment... When Obama was releasing nonviolent drug offenders towards the end of his time in office, Hannity was attacking him. He's releasing criminals. Put the criminals back in prison. See, for Sean, it's just his whole thing is I'm going to play for my team. And so even though I was for the crime bill, now I'm going to pretend like I'm against it. And it was a good thing to do uh, criminal justice reform. What do you actually believe? You can never tell because he's a hack. Um, then he, he goes to record low unemployment. This is the thing that they said. And the part that made me laugh was, he goes, let me give you the numbers. So we had record low uh, African-American unemployment, record low Asian-American unemployment, 
record low, and he's going through it, and he says, pre-corona. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You don't get a mulligan? It's not like, well, post-corona obviously doesn't count. Of course it counts. You have to deal with it. You're president. You have to roll with the punches. It's a fluid situation. So you have to address the reality as it exists right now. You have to deal with corona. And then try to get everything back in the right direction. That's like excusing, as Mark Cuban points out. That's like saying, oh, well, let's talk about Obama and Biden, but if the Great Recession didn't happen. But you can't do that. You have to, it happened, so you have to deal with it as president. <laughs> that's, what, that's the way this works. That's the job. You can't say, well, pre-corona things were looking good. Okay, but we're post-corona now. So are you admitting things don't look good? Because they don't. And then finally, the best point that he made. So Hannity was pushing um, Mark Cuban here, give me something that Biden did that you support, that you think is good. Um, and it's definitely a fair question. If you're going to support him, you should have you know, solid reasons as to why you're going to support him and why Trump is way worse and beyond the pale and why Trump might be so bad that I have to go for Biden. Well, he brings up, Obamacare. Now listen, I'm a Medicare for all guy. So Obamacare to me, that's a right-leaning reform. To be fair to Mark Cuban, he's a right-leaning guy. So this is right up his alley in terms of there's the kind of neoliberal solution that he salivates over. But he makes a decent point. He says, well, with Obamacare, we gave millions of people, tens of millions of people, health care. Under Trump, he got rid of the individual mandate. He used his executive orders to basically put a hatchet in the back of Obamacare. And as a result of that, and now the pandemic, tens of millions of people have lost their health care. We already have 28 million without health care. Now we have another at least 20 million more on top of that who don't have health care. So Biden, even though the bill was flawed, in my opinion, Obama and Biden did give millions of more people health care Trump, millions of people lost health care with him as president, and in part is a direct result of his executive orders and his policies. I can't have millions of people lose health care. I'm, I'm not okay with that. And Hannity has no response. Now, Hannity beat, used to beat up on Obamacare all the time, every night on his show. But when you look at the bottom line facts of it, yes, Medicare for all is way better. Yes, Obamacare in many respects is a giveaway to the health insurance company. But there are unquestionably some good things in there. Protection for pre-existing conditions. Making the health insurance companies pay at least 80% of their money to actual health care. They used to have like 50-50 ratios where they were all this money on overhead and wasting it, right? And one of the good things is tens of millions of people got health care. That's unquestionably positive. So Cuban is pushed on, all right, so name something that Biden did that you like then. He thinks it's a gotcha moment. And Cuban's like, Obamacare, tens of millions of people got health care. Now they lost it under Trump. I'm not okay with that. That's unacceptable. And Hannity's... See, Mark Cuban is, again, he's not my cup of tea. He's way to the right of me. Um, He's a little bit of like a neoliberal, technocratic, micromanager, know-it-all. I think he has a higher opinion of himself than is the reality about him. Um, But 
even a guy like Mark Cuban can easily dismantle Hannity because Hannity is nothing but a hack, and I think this video is a great example of it. All right, we're going to talk about Bernard Sanders. Corporate Democrats are already setting the table for if Biden loses. They're getting ready to blame this guy right here because, of course, they are. Democrats are worried their party unity is fraying five months out from the presidential election and several contested primaries pitting progressives against mainstream Democrats go down to the wire. Some Democrats have begun pointing the finger at Senator Bernie Sanders, saying he's been consumed with down-ballot elections at the expense of promoting Biden's bid for the White House. The Democrats, who are not affiliated with the Biden campaign, say Sanders needs to do more to make sure progressives fall in line behind Joe Biden in November. While they concede Sanders has done more to help Biden than he did in the 2016 race for then-Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton, they still say Sanders needs to use his influence with his supporters to ensure they turn out and donate and donate to, the, to Biden's campaign. Sanders' endorsement of half a dozen insurgent candidates this week in upcoming primaries who are taking on establishment favorites has added to the unease felt by some Democrats. So they go on to hit Bernie for not fundraising for Biden. That's the one thing where he drew a line. Everything else, he's helping him, and you know it's annoying a lot of his hardcore supporters, including myself. But the one thing he apparently did is he said, I'm not going to fundraise for you. Elizabeth Warren did a fundraiser with him. I think Bernie draws the line because he knows that such a large percentage of his followers hate Biden. So you can't just casually like hand over all their information, you know, get them on a Biden freaking email list. and It's like, no, no, I don't. I would never in a million years donate to Joe Biden, ever. <laughs> and I think he knows that there's so many of his supporters who feel that way. So there's at least some degree of respect, and he's not going to just sell you out and turn over the keys to the kingdom. Um, but that's the only line he's drawn. And even that, they're saying, oh, how dare he? How dare he? Why is the onus not on Biden to go get those voters? Why is the finger not pointed to him to say, man, you got to do more to get these people? They're pointing the finger at Bernie for not trying to make his supporters donate to Biden. The level of entitlement that these people feel is off the charts. So I want to go back here. They, they say Democrats are worried their party unity is fraying five months out from the presidential election as several contested primaries pitting progressive against mainstream de Democrats go down to the wire. So look at the framing. The assumption, the premise is, oh, well, obviously the contested primaries are a problem. Wait, why is that a problem? Isn't that democracy? Isn't that something you guys say you care about and you believe in? Isn't it good to try to get the best candidate to go up against the Republicans? No, no, no. The default assumption is, well, obviously leave the moderates, leave the centrists, leave the corporatists alone. They're entitled. They deserve the seats. And the left needs to go away. Come on. Come on, this is, 
Uh, hello, party unity is fraying five months out. Party unity is fraying. Well, that's interesting because you guys all supported primaries of the already elected left-wing politicians. Apparently, you didn't care as much about party unity in that instance. You were more than happy to go after the left. But it's only when the left is running against the incumbent centrist corporatist that you're like, oh, my God, party unity, party unity. Some Democrats have begun pointing the finger at Bernie Sanders, saying he's been consumed with down-ballot elections. Yeah, he's consumed with down-ballot elections because they more closely represent his ideology, whereas Joe Biden is a neoliberal corporatist, and he's begrudgingly supporting Joe Biden because he thinks Donald Trump is a much worse evil. So it makes sense he would focus on the down-ballot elections. And to have Democrats say, well, Bernie needs to do more, to make sure progressives fall in line. No, no, no. Biden needs to do more to make sure progressives fall in line. He's the candidate. The onus is on him. Guys, it's never going to be enough. Just so you understand, if Biden wins, which right now he's a big favorite, if Biden wins, Bernie gets no credit. If Biden loses, Bernie will get all the blame. Rinse and repeat for every election involving a centrist corporatist. See, to them, it's obviously a problem that you have primaries, that you have insurgent candidates, that you have people who actually believe in a left-wing vision and policies. Gross. We're just, come on, we want to get the power and do nothing but the same old, same old. That's on the underlying theme of this article. So they're already setting the table. They're already trying to pawn off blame if Biden loses. This is the insurance policy here. Again, Biden's up big at the moment, so it doesn't look likely right now. Things can change, but right now it doesn't look likely. Um, But they're already trying to give themselves the out if it happens. Blame the left. Blame Bernie. um, Because this is all they know, and this is all they have. And now they're struggling to actually beat this surging left, so it's time to play dirty. And to say, there's party unity. No, no, no. No primaries anymore. Party unity and Bernie shut up and do everything Biden says. And, you know, give him money. Give him money. You have to fundraise for him. Bernie, make people fall in line. All the onus is always on the left, always on Bernie. It's never on the candidates to actually get the voter and do the right thing. That says a lot about the function of the media, doesn't it? Okay, next. This one is going to be tough because I can't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to read this. Try my best. We're going to talk about John Bolton. I got small print in front of me. That's going to be obnoxious. There's been a lot of talk about John Bolton's new book, and um, some journalists have read it, and they've isolated the turning point where Bolton basically starts to hate Trump. Now, you know, a lot of people on the Democratic side are using the Bolton book to, like, burn Trump and be like, see, Bolton came out against him, as if that means anything, as if that's like, well, obviously Trump is, the, is wrong in this, and Biden, and Biden, excuse me, Freudian slip, Bolton is correct. Um, you're about to see that his motives are even worse than anybody could have guessed. Actually, that's not fair. I guess it. Probably many of you guessed it. But in terms of all the people 
who make up the dominant voice in mainstream media, they're oblivious as to how bad and wrong and terrible Bolton's motives really are. So this is from his book. The font is a little small here, uh, and I'm going to start. It's kind of near the bottom of the page. It's like halfway down uh, through that second paragraph. But this is the most important part and why Bolton turned on Trump. They say, this is, this is Bolton here, as Pompeo, as Pompeo and I were talking, the sit room broke in to say Trump wanted to have a conference call with the two of us, Shanahan and Dunford. Trump came on the line, perhaps 720, I was slowly crossing the Roosevelt Bridge across the Potomac, to say he had decided to call the strikes off because they were not proportionate. 150 to 1, he said. And I thought perhaps he was referring to the number of missiles we might fire compared to the one Iranian missile that had brought down the, the Global Hawk, which is a drone. Instead, Trump said he had been told by someone unnamed there might be 150 Iranian casualties. Quote, too many body bags, said Trump, which he was not willing to risk for an unmanned drone. Not proportionate, he said again. Pompeo tried to reason with him, but he wasn't having it. Saying we could always strike later, Trump cut the discussion off, repeating that he didn't want to have a lot of body bags on television. I tried to change his mind, but I got nowhere. I said I was nearing the White House and would come to the Oval Office when I arrived. In my government experience, this was the most irrational thing I ever witnessed any president do. It called to mind Kelly's question to me. What would happen if we ever got into a real crisis with Trump as president? Well, we now had one, and Trump had behaved bizarrely, just as Kelly had feared. As I arrived at the White House entrance on West Executive Avenue shortly after 7.30 p.m., Kuberman was outside to greet me to say the strike was off. I went by my office to drop off my briefcase and went straight to, to the Oval, where I found Cipollone, Eisenberg, and Mulvaney, and a Mulvaney staffer. I think we could stop there. So in other words, Bolton was down to be in the Trump administration and help him with his agenda until Trump called off an attack on Iran because he feared that there would be way too many civilian casualties. Bolton is saying it's the most irrational thing he's ever heard from a president because Trump didn't want to attack Iran and have 150 dead people because they had shot down a U.S. drone. He said, it's not proportionate. I can't do that. Now, later on, Trump did kill Qasem Soleimani. Okay, let's understand that, which I'm totally against. It's insane. It brought us to the brink of a, another new hot war. That's absurd, ridiculous, and it's dangerous, playing with fire. A little bit earlier, weeks earlier, Trump was going to do an attack that would have killed more people and Qasem Soleimani, and he said, I can't do it because there's going to be too many body bags 
and that's not proportionate, and it's going to escalate. And Bolton said that's the most irrational thing he's ever heard from a president, and this was the turning point when Bolton knew he was going to turn on Trump and not defend him anymore. And he knew at this point that, like, oh, when I'm done with this, I'm going to, like, write a tell-all book and expose how evil and bad and wrong Trump is. So let's understand that. The reason, as I told you, the reason Bolton hates Trump is because in his mind, Trump is not hawkish enough. This is why you do not give credit to anybody who utters an anti-Trump sentiment. Because the reality is, as bad as Trump is, there are plenty of players on the right who are even worse, even worse on the actual issues, on the policies, on the substance. And this is not a defense of Trump, by the way. Trump has been abysmal. Trump has been terrible. Trump's, you know, policies over his time in office have been devastating. But a guy like John Bolton, the reason he's mad is because in his mind, Trump is not hawkish enough. Trump is continuing the war in Iraq. Trump is continuing the war in Afghanistan. Trump increased drone strikes by 432%. Trump is escalating with Iran and Venezuela right now. Not enough for John Bolton. He wants more body bags, more death, more ground invasions. And that's why he's mad at Trump now. So if the so-called liberal media is cheering him, that says a lot about them, doesn't it? You've got to be focused on the issues or you, or you lose your way in this personality clash and the partisan politics. And there's nothing dumber than that. Okay, next. There's a Florida woman who went to a public hearing on a mandatory mask policy, and her rant went viral for obvious reasons. Take a look. knowing that that mask is killing people. It literally is killing people. And my, the people, we the people, are waking up, and we know what citizens' arrest is, because citizens' arrests are already happening, okay? And every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. And you, doctors, are going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. Every single one of you have a smirk behind that little mask, but every single one of you are going to get punished by God. You cannot, you cannot escape God. You cannot escape God. I'm going to say that again. You cannot escape God, not even with a mask or six feet. Okay? Six feet, like I said before, is military protocol. You're trying to get the people to train them so when the, the cameras, the 5G comes out, what? They're, they're going to they're gonna scan everybody. we got to get scanned. we got to get temperatures. The kids have to go to school with masks. Are you insane? Are you crazy? I think all of you should be in a psych ward right the heck now because none of you, none of you know what the hell you are all talking about. This is insane. And then you want to open this meeting with a prayer to God. Are you praying to the devil? Because God is not listening to that prayer because all of you are practicing the devil's laws. What happened to Bill Gates? 
Why is he not in jail? Why is Hillary Clinton not in jail? Why are all of, all of these pedophiles that are demanding you all to, to listen to their rules, why are they not in jail? Oh, is it because you're part of them? Are you part of the deep state? The deep state is going down. And if any of you are in the deep state, you're going down with it. You know, I, I actually struggle with stuff like this because I get torn between let's blame her and talk about how crazy she is and talk about how unhinged she is and how this is, like, really sad. I get torn between that feeling, but also the feeling of, like, the government has lied to us for so long, so consistently, and on so many such so many important issues that it's like they've given everybody reason to be suspicious of them. And so it kind of breeds this brand of conspiracy theorizing. Does that make sense? Now, I think maybe in this case, she goes so far talking about the devil and talking about how masks are killing people and, and the deep state and Hillary Clinton. And it seems like there are what references to like Pizzagate stuff in there. And like, she goes so far that it's easy to just point the finger at her and be like, Look at this clown. You know, what are you, uh, Alex Jones, devotee, and, you know, now you're out there kind of regurgitating everything you heard. And also the confidence in her voice almost leads me to think that she might actually have some genuine psychological issues that are unaddressed because she's saying these crazy things so confidently. So, like, yeah, she goes so far that it makes you want to point finger at her and blame her specifically. But there are so many people out there who might not be – as far gone as this lady is, who are in that position because prominent lies like the Iraq war stuck out in their mind, where we were lied to every step of the way, and they told us Saddam worked with al-Qaeda and had weapons of mass destruction. Neither of those things were true. You know, we invaded. It has a lot to do with the military-industrial complex, a lot to do with the oil in the region, you know, all of our wars have a lot to do with natural resources and exploiting them. And John Bolton admitted it on, on um, Fox Business where he said Venezuela's got a lot of oil that we would like to get our hands on. Like, so you have a situation where the government is totally corrupted, run by the military-industrial complex, run by Wall Street, run by big-money donors. The politicians do their bidding, and all these brazen lies, they can't even handle a pandemic And so because the government is so corrupted, because the government is so packed full of psychopathic liars, yeah, you partly have to blame them for creating the conditions where in this kind of insanity can grow, can metastasize. So, yeah, I always get caught between those two feelings looking at videos like this. On the one hand, that woman genuinely needs help. She seems psychologically off and everything she's saying is wild and untrue and goes way too far. Um, but on the other hand, if the government was responsible, not corrupt, told the truth, and gave people material well-being in the form of, of a UBI or something like that, wouldn't people trust the government a lot more? Wouldn't they? I would think yes. I would think yes. If we had a government that actually looked out for us, a government that wasn't corrupted, a government that didn't tell so many amazing, gigantic lies, the government literally just lied about face masks. They said... Face masks are dangerous, and the reason they said that is because they wanted to make sure we had enough face masks for the first responders. They could have just said that. Hey, don't buy the 
N95 top-of-the-line masks because we need them for the first responders. But they didn't say that. They lied and started downplaying how effective masks are and said quite explicitly masks don't work. So they just lied to us about this issue. Now, this woman is saying the same thing. She's saying, like, oh, masks are killing you. No, they're not. No, they're not. Don't say that. But I think that the reason why, one of the reasons why she's gone down this path is because the government has lied so many times over and over that she looks at somebody like Alex Jones and thinks he's a truth teller and goes down that path. So, not good, man. I, don't, I think we're in imperial decline. I think our country's unhealthy. And I think, um, you know, somebody said this is a YouTube comment section come to life. <laughs> I actually think that's a little bit disrespectful to YouTube comment sections because I think you guys are significantly more rational than what we just saw right there. But, yeah, it's, um, it's scary to see that the authorities lie to us and then there's many in the population who have lost the plot as a result of that and as a result of some own psychological issues. And it's just sad to see. We are watching the decline of an empire, and it's not even happening in slow motion anymore. It's happening pretty quickly. All right, next. So apparently, this thing happened again. I don't know how many of you remember this. It happened, I think, eight years ago. Um, And this made me laugh quite a bit. So The Guardian is reporting on it. Experts call for regulation after latest botched art restoration in Spain. Copy of Immaculate Conception painting by Murillo, reportedly cleaned by furniture restorer. So you read the article and you find out that a guy offered to do it for like 1,200 euros, which seems like a cheap price to deal with such an expensive painting. And the results are abysmal. (laughs) My question is, how are people so nonchalant about picking the people to do the restoration? Because obviously this is fraudulent. Like the person doing it has no idea what the hell they're doing. And so, and how you have the nerve to even try it? How do you have the nerve to try it? If you're somebody who you know you don't know how to do this, you're like, I don't know, I'll take a crack at it. And the results are like, I could draw a better face than that. Come on, bro. Come on. (laughs) Somebody on Twitter said, I hope this never stops happening. Yeah, I mean, it is probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I remember... When the original one happened, which is this one, they call it Monkey Jesus, right? That was the original. They needed it to get restored. They sent it to somebody. And that's how it came back. (laughs) I remember the first time I saw this story. I may have left. It was like top five all time. Laughed the hardest in my life. The first time I saw this. The first time I saw this, I was, I, I laughed so hard that my stomach hurt. Like, my abs hurt. I, it, was, it was just so, it was nonstop laughter for an extended period of time where I had trouble breathing. Because you really think, like, oh, come on. If you're, like, if you're a museum or you're a wealthy private art collector and you need to get something restored, how do you not do, like, extensive research to make sure you go to the right people? I mean, you, you destroyed, like, a very famous painting. <laughs> Uh, I feel like there's a metaphor in there somewhere about, you know, the state of the world right now and what's happening in 2020. Like, this is kind of like, oh, man, everything's messed up. Let's fix it. Oh, no, we made it worse. (laughs) It's 
too good. I I agree. I really hope this never stops happening because I always get a good laugh out of it. Okay, next. Let me do, should I do one or two more? I'm going to do one more. Uno mas. So this caught my eye last night. It, um... There's so much to say about it. Bill de Blasio is planning to install a Black Lives Matter mural in front of Trump Tower. This is the kind of idea that a politician floats to their staff behind the scenes, and the staff is convinced it's genius, it's brilliant, it's amazing. Everybody's going to love this. Because you're taking a stand and you're saying, I'm with Black Lives Matter and I'm against Trump. Now, the reaction to this story, the exact opposite. This pissed off everybody. So it pissed off the Republicans and the conservatives because, you know, many of them are pro-Trump and um, they're anti-Black Lives Matter. And so they hate it because why would they like something like that? They don't want any public display of Black Lives Matter support, and they, want, they don't want Trump to be trolled or disrespected, so they hate it. Yeah, you know who else hates it? Black Lives Matter. You know who else hates it? The left. Why? Because this is like, this is placating. This is, let me substitute substantive policy reform where we massively cut the budget or something for the NYPD. Let me substitute that with symbolism. What did I tell you? What do I tell you? Sometimes I'm more right than even I know. (laughs) Like, the first thing they cave on is always the symbolism. Always, always, always. Why? Because nothing hinges on the symbolism. What changes if you do a Black Lives Matter mural in front of Trump Tower? You know what changes? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. You know who knows that better than anybody else? Black Lives Matter. This is, you know, this is one of those moves where... It makes it so we don't end the drug war, legalize marijuana, have special prosecutors in all instances of um, police brutality, have a police-the-police law where whatever the bad cop is guilty of, every cop around that cop is guilty of the exact same crime, so it makes them police themselves. Hey, don't do that. I don't want to go to prison. This is a substitute for real solutions, real ideas. That's what this is. If I give in on the symbolism, if I kneel, if I wear a kente cloth, if I say Black Lives Matter, if I let you paint it on the street, will you then please get off my ass? Yes. (laughs) That's what this is. We all see through you, dog. We all see through you. When you go all in on symbolism instead of substantive policy, you piss off everybody. And I've never seen a clearer example of it than this story. All right. And on that note, we are done. And I am hungry, bitch. All right. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody stay healthy out there. Peace.